0: Tonight we're continuing on and we're going to be in Matthew, Um, surprisingly we're going to be in Matthew, yeah, we are at uh, one year and three weeks in the book of Matthew so far, yeah, very excited, and we're going to be in Matthew 10, so we're not even halfway done yet, so here we go, Um, Matthew 10 is where we're going to be tonight, and so let me kind of, I, I need to set up tonight's scripture to make sense of it is um, Jesus is going to give us kind of a warning uh, about, so it connects to last week, but he's going to give us a warning. And here's what you need to understand about Jesus, and it may not translate in our culture so much, is that Jesus is incredibly offensive, and he knows it. So Jesus is offensive because um, for 2,000 years, it doesn't matter if you're from the East or from the West, it doesn't matter if you lived 2,000 years ago or today, it doesn't matter what race you are or uh, what socioeconomic status you have, if you're rich, if you're poor, whatever it is, um, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender in that he will offend everybody. Now we get offended for different reasons, but Jesus is offensive to everyone in the world and has been since the day that he walked the earth. And what's weird about it is um, we have a popular conception of Jesus, and it would kind of be analogous to Mr. Rogers, all right? Do you guys know who Mr. Rogers is? Did you grow up with Mr. Rogers? Really? You don't know who Mr. Rogers is? Won't you be my neighbor, that guy? I wasn't allowed to watch him, but there's a story behind it. We'll talk about it some other time. Anyway, Mr. Rogers is like supposed to be kind of the most friendly, caring, just... He's just a sweetheart, this Mr. Roger. And he just wants to love you and he wants to be your neighbor. And so, people, when they think about Jesus, they kind of think of uh, a little bit of a hippie who loves everybody and just wants everybody to be peaceful and loving. The problem with that is um, that is not at all who he is portrayed to be in any of the Gospels. The person of Jesus is nothing like Mr. Rogers. And here's how you know, just right off the bat, is no one ever wanted to kill Mr. Rogers. They may have found him annoying, whatever, but nobody wanted to kill Mr. Rogers, and yet Jesus was murdered. And no one wants to worship Mr. Rogers, and Jesus was worshiped. And so there's something just right off the bat that's very different than our popular conception of who Jesus is and uh, the Jesus described in the scriptures. Nobody walked away from an encounter of Jesus or reading about Jesus um, and, and had a moderate opinion of him everyone has an extreme opinion about Jesus if you actually take him serious. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in the world hates Jesus, because to be honest, most people don't even know who Jesus is. They have a conception of Jesus, but they've never taken the time to find out who Jesus was and what he said and what he stood for. And so most people are kind of like, yeah, I like Jesus because I've heard a couple things about him. He seemed like he was a nice guy and a good teacher. But if you take Jesus seriously on His terms, um, you will either have to do uh, one of a few things, and this is what we see the response in the scriptures of: you either run away because you are afraid of Him, and that's what some people did because they said He was like uh, like a demon, like a, 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 a demon worker, and that's where He got His powers from, or um, you wanted to murder Him, which obviously happened, or you want to fall at His feet and worship Him but nobody ever walked away from Jesus going he is such a nice guy. I should have him over for my birthday. No one ever says that. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And here's why. Because the things that Jesus said and stood for are are going to be offensive. Let me give you some examples first thing that he said was, he says that he is the invisible God made visible, that he is God incarnate. And he made these huge statements like, um, before Abraham was, I am. Or things like, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Like I've been around before the creation of the world. In fact, it is me who has created the heavens and the earth. And that is pretty divisive. You either have to say, all right, either he really is God, or he is a crazy person, or he is a liar. But you don't get to walk away going, oh, that Jesus making those crazy claims again. <laughs> he's crazy. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know? Now, he's, he makes, okay, how about his teachings? He says that he is the only one who will allow you entrance into heaven, that he is the doorway into heaven, and it's only through him that you can get into heaven that you can know the Father. And one day, he will judge everyone. And the way that they will be either forgiven or condemned is how they know Jesus and the relationship that they have with Jesus. This means that, um, one, he is saying he is the sole truth, which then negates all other truth claims. All other religions, he says, are false. He says, I don't care if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, if you're uh, secular uh, and atheist. I don't care what you claim to be true about the world. If it is not me, then you are a liar or you have bought into a lie. This is, this is crazy, right? Like, can you imagine making these kinds of claims? Well, this is why people find Jesus very divisive. Not only that, he also says that there are certain moral standards that we are supposed to live that we are not free to do what we want to do, that we are not autonomous, that we don't have to, uh, that we get to uh, be accountable to no one. He says, you are accountable to me for how you live. And I have certain standards. So like when it comes to your body, it's not you who gets to make the choice. It's me who gets to make the choice. When it comes to money or your time or your resources or your opportunities, your gifts, all of those things do not belong to you. They belong to me. And I am giving you um, the stewardship over them. But They're not yours, they're mine. And so what I say to do with them goes. See, Jesus forces us to make a decision about him. He doesn't let us just slide on the whole deal. He says, you're either going to run away, you're either going to try to kill me, or you're going to worship me. But you don't get to just be neutral on Jesus. And he does this on purpose. Not only does he make these huge claims, but he also makes some claims about the world that we live in and us as individuals. Every other founder of religion say, here's what you need to do in order to connect with God. You either need to take this journey. You need to follow these principles. You need to um, do these certain rituals and exercises. And Jesus comes along and says, nope, none of that's going to work. Because the fundamental problem is that you, as a human, are so wicked and so broken that your heart is beyond repair. That you are as wicked in the depths of your heart as every murderer that is on uh, death row. And when people hear that, they go, what? No, no. I mean, I do things that I probably shouldn't sometimes, but like, I'm not desperately wicked. He says, no, no, no. You are so wicked and your heart is so corrupt that you deserve death and condemnation. Again, not a popular message. Not something that you'd walk around and probably tell your friends. It's not a great conversation starter. And then Jesus says, the only way that you can be made whole, the only way that you can know God, the only way that your heart can be transformed is through me. Nothing you can do. You're broken. You are so broken, you cannot repair yourself. Again, he becomes the sole authority of our life. And here's the thing. When we understand that what he's offering us is salvation but it's on his terms. It's a free gift. There's nothing that we can do about it. That in itself is very offensive. Let me give you an example. Um, Let's imagine that you were raised in a Christian household and that for your entire life, you follow Jesus. You don't go out and, you know, you don't party like a rock star. You don't do anything. You're always, you you sit home alone on Saturday nights while you're growing up because you're like, I don't want to get in trouble. You spend your whole life following these rules. And then you have this other person who is going out there and is just crazy out of their mind. And then on their deathbed, they confess to believe in Jesus and then he offers them forgiveness of their sins and they go to heaven and you go to heaven and you end up in the same place as they do. You spent your whole life trying to follow Jesus and yet they do it in their last moments and you get the same reward. That's offensive to some people. That's the story of the prodigal son. And so it is an offensive message that there is nothing we can do in order to earn our forgiveness. It is simply a gift that we have to receive and we can receive it at any point and still get the reward of heaven in the end. That's offensive. In fact, that's so offensive to people that they say, I don't even want to follow that Jesus because that seems immoral to me. And yet this is grace. And so he in the end of the day, no matter what offends us about Jesus, whether it's the, the ethics or whether it's the morals or the truth claims, whatever it may be, the exclusivity, at the end of the day, the reason why we find Jesus so offensive is because um, Jesus confronts the idolatry in our life. And idolatry is whatever is the number one thing in our life, the thing that we live for or the thing that we would die for, Jesus says, I want that to be pushed out of first place and I am going to be there instead. And so whatever that thing is for you, this is why Jesus is offensive to us. It's because he says it's either me as the first and primary thing in your life or it is nothing at all. You can't have something else at the top of your life. And so this is what he says next because he understands how offensive he is. Here's what he says in Matthew 10 verse 16. He says this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Sending you out. So, so last week, we talked about being sent out, and that's the mission. That's, that's what Christians are called to do. That is all of our purpose. As we follow Jesus, we are supposed to go and share that gospel message with everybody that we know, right? So that's like the sole purpose of our life, to follow him and bring other people into discipleship of Jesus and then bring him to this community, and we grow together. So that, that, that's last week. That's the sending out. But then he says this. He says, there's going to be sheep, and there's going to be wolves, and in this scenario, we are the sheep. We're cute, we're fluffy, but we're dumb. And then there are the wolves. And you know what wolves want to do with sheep? Not cuddle, rip them apart, eat them alive. And so he's saying, "Hey, okay, here's what we're going to do, you guys. Can you imagine like if this was a football coach and he was trying to give us a motto? Okay, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to go out there and get destroyed. You ready? It's going to be painful. <laughs> All right. <I'm> like, no, <laughs> not doing that. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're going to go out there and the people who do not believe in me are going to try to tear you apart. This is what's interesting to me is the popular conception of Christianity is that people become Christians because they're weak. Because they're afraid of death, they need some kind of crutch in their life. They need something to believe in, and so weak-minded people become Christians. But historically, that's clearly not true because Jesus says when you go out there, the world is going to hate you and they're going to try to tear you apart. And this literally happens to thousands of Christians even today. And even the physical part is not the most serious, uh, serious danger that we face as Christians. Because if there really is a spiritual realm, which I believe there is, and there is a God and there is Satan and Jesus is on the side of God, in fact, he is God, then we have now stepped onto the front lines of a spiritual battle that's happening on a cosmic scale, and we've said, we're all in. The safest place to be, at least temporarily, is to be totally separated from the cosmic battle that's taking place, is to be like everybody else in the world to follow my pleasures, to do what I want to do, to not be at the front lines battling for Jesus. It's to step back and to just be apathetic and, and live my life the way that I want. The most dangerous place in the world to be is to be a Christian because your enemy is Satan. Now, luckily, you're on God's side and God is far more powerful than Satan, but you are going to be at the front lines. Thank you. <laughs> Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Okay, this is, this is where he gets kind of, this is going to get interesting. Here's what he's saying. saying shrewd. Shrewd is not probably a term that we use very often, but being shrewd is, is, is not being naive or dumb or willfully ignorant to what's happening in the world, but it's also not being like slick or sly. For some reason, the first image that came to mind was, um, was it Saul from Breaking Bad. You know, he's kind of greasy and kind of gross. That's not being shrewd, okay? Being shrewd is, um, I am a thinking person. I understand. I'm informed. I'm constantly learning. And unfortunately, when we think on a popular level about Christianity, that's not the image that comes to mind. The first image for most people that comes to mind when they think about Christianity is the Christian that they saw on the nightly news. And you know who that person usually is? The Duck Dynasty guys. They seem like sweethearts. They seem like great dudes. I would love to hang out with them. However, I'm not sure if I want them to represent Christianity for me, or at least not all of Christianity. I always wonder why don't they put like these incredibly smart philosophers or scientists or Christians on there, and it's because they want us to look stupid. Stupid. But the scripture commands us, you have to be informed, you have to be thinking people because what's going to happen is the world is going to try to indoctrinate you with their worldview, with how they see the world, both the spiritual and the physical world. And so you have to be a thinking person to be able to identify the indoctrination and to be able to combat it. See, we don't realize that we are constantly being indoctrinated Every single day with what we listen to and what we watch and, and uh, what we learn in schools. And, and it's unavoidable. This is just the world that we live in. However, we have to combat it. We have to be able to identify it. We can't just sit idly by as they pour things into our minds. We have to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to recognize that for what it really is. And then I'm going to, um, I'm going to put an argument against it. So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters, and I haven't it, uh, re- read it read it, read it, it, in a long time, but if you've never read this book, it's fascinating. So, C.S. Lewis is also, you probably heard of him before, Chronicles of Narnia. It's the chronic. What calls Narnia? And so, great book. That's old school. You didn't even know that. What's that then? Some of you guys are like, what is he talking about? That's fine. You're just not with it. It's not a big deal. Anyway, okay, Screwtape Letters. Uh youtube it uh screwtape letters is a fascinating book because here's what um, cs lewis does is he creates this dialogue between a senior tempter which is a demon and uh named screwtape and a less experienced tempter also a demon uh, called Warmwood, And what they do is they're having a dialogue back and forth in which the senior tempter or demon is trying to mentor um, the lesser tempter or the, uh, uh, yeah, the other demon. And he's giving him um, advice on how to tempt or pull away people from Christ. And the tactics that are being used are not overtly like uh, spiritual. They're really, really subtle, and the dialogues that they're having, you can see how how this would would take place. Let me give you an example. He says, if you want to lure people away, you do it through deception. You can do it through giving them power and pleasure and success, or you can at least neutralize them by making them afraid of the future and giving them anxiety. Here's what it says. It says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards, meaning gambling, can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. See, the way that we are pulled away from Christ is through subtle means. It's not these crazy, overt things. It's usually through the day-to-day mundane things that we're being inculcated with. My favorite example of this, and I've used it a few times before, but I just think it makes so much sense, is, is sin looks like this, Is and the way that Satan works is kind of like um, slaughtering a cow. And this is like my favorite example, because it makes so much sense, is I, I did some research a while back on how they slaughter cows. I don't know why, but I did. And the way that they do this is they create these chutes that they walk through and they're winding so they can't see above the walls because they're constantly turning. And eventually they get to this lift that um, picks them up by their stomach and then lifts them through this tunnel and there's a light at the end of the tunnel which I just think... It's hilarious because when they get to the end of the tunnel, they never see it coming, they're fully relaxed at this point, right? They're just like, oh, this is like a cow spa, you know, like this is great. And then as soon as they come out of the tunnel, a metal rod shoots into their brain and kills them and they're done, right? It is awesome if you're into that kind of thing. This is the perfect, I don't, you should YouTube it, it's crazy. Yet another thing for you to watch. It's fantastic. It's crazy. What? No, you don't have hamburgers? What? How do you think this works? Do you think they just roll over and go, "Okay, it's my time. I need a. I need. I need people to have a Big Mac on my behalf, right? Please. Anyway, this is exactly how we are deceived. It's through. It's through this very slow and gradual process. And so I want to give you an example that I think because, it, uh, the reason I give it is because one, it's so, uh, I think, explicit, but also because it's uh, at the forefront of our media right now. And I want to I want to preface this a little bit, because the example that I have is um, probably one of the most hot topic issues, which is abortion. And and I just want to say this up front, is I understand this is a big group, and there are lots of people, and we know, uh, and I know, lots of folks who have dealt with this and have, have had an abortion themselves, and and. First and foremost, the reason why I'm talking about this is not because I want to bring guilt or judgment on you. In fact, we believe this is the place where you're going to find healing and restoration. That we love you and we don't care what you've done. We just want to be able to to help you walk through whatever decisions you've made in the past with no judgment. That's what we're here for. But I also want us to be able to talk about these really profound and important issues. And so when we talk about abortion, the scripture is really clear. But not only is the scripture clear, but the science and the philosophy is clear behind it. But somehow, as a culture, we have bought into something that is a complete lie. even as Christians we've bought into this. And I think it's because we have been strategically deceived to believe something that is not true. And it's resulted in 50 million unborn children that have been killed and tens of thousands of women who have to live with incredible pain and regret because of this decision. And I don't take that lightly. And so I want to look at how did we come to believe in not only that abortion is okay, but it is something that we should stand and be proud of. So let me, let's look at this a little bit. Let's, and I use this as an example, just one example of how strategic we, how strategic people are in deceiving us and pulling us away from the things that scripture affirms. So check this out. Starts with verbal engineering. Changing words and how we use them um, in order to change the way a, a group of people or a society thinks. And so we see this throughout, throughout history. A perfect example is Nazi Germany. In Nazi Germany, the way that they were able to dehumanize the Jews is because they started to call them something other than human. In fact, they started to call them rats. And so when you get to the place in which you're going to kill a Jewish person, if you really think of them at the same level morally as a rat, you can do that fairly easily. And so the first step in order to dehumanize people is to start changing the language of what they are. And what's interesting is the abortion debate has been carefully crafted in order to help you think about it differently with the language and the terminology that they use. In fact, BuzzFeed just came out with an article which um, is very much for and uh, very much pro-abortion and said this, a recent research push by the organization found, this is Planned Parenthood, that large numbers of Americans feel this way, uncomfortable with both the pro-life and pro-choice labels. Now this is the important part. And so Planned Parenthood's newest messaging will be moving away from the language of choice. Now, did you hear this? Is Planned Parenthood, amongst other organizations, they will do studies on specific words that make people feel comfortable or uncomfortable, and they will start to change the terminology in order to make people feel more comfortable about abortion. And this is a new phenomenon. In fact, they've been doing this uh, since the 70s. So in the 70s, abortion uh, advocates were called pro-abortion But then that became too graphic, because it immediately made you think of abortion. And so they changed the terminology to pro-choice. And they began attaching slogans like, the right to control my own body. What happens there is they are creating in our minds a shift away from what the real issue is into a different issue. Pro-abortion makes you think about the issue of abortion, but when you say pro-choice, it makes you think about women's rights and freedoms and gets away from what the core issue is. And then they start saying things like, well, you're not pro-life, you're anti-choice. It's not that you are pro-life and that you don't like abortion, it's that you don't like women. That's why you don't want abortions. See, this is incredibly misleading and it's done purposefully because at the end of the day, the real issue is not about women's rights, The real issue is about the question of what is the unborn? If the unborn is human, it's a person, then we have to give that person rights, whether they are uh, born or not. But if it's not a person, fine, kill it, do whatever you want. But the real issue is we have to ask what is the unborn? But see, that's not a question that they want to debate because that question is pretty clear. The unborn are persons just like you and I. And so they want to shift the conversation away from the central issue into a different issue. Let's make it instead of about abortion, let's make it about women's rights. And the recent shift has even gone further away from choice because they've realized that now they don't even want to make it about choice any longer. They want to make it about women's reproductive health and reproductive rights. And so now you're not just anti-choice, But you're anti-woman because if you're against abortion, you must be a misogynist. You must hate the fact that women can choose what to do with their body. You must not want them to get health care. You must not want them to have reproductive rights. And so now it becomes a civil issue in which we have gotten so far away from the central question of abortion to now making it a reproductive rights and women's health care issue. And we did it by changing the terminology. See we hide behind these euphemism euphemisms. We have things like you know abortion it's not the killing of a baby or an unborn child it's simply terminating a pregnancy. It's not that the baby it's not that it is a baby or unborn child in the womb it's that it's a a fetus. Or the abortion clinic is a family planning center. See, we hide behind these euphemisms and we do this so that we don't have to deal with what the real issue is. Now, here's my real fear. Is this, is this, this is an issue that we've talked about before, but here's my real fear. Is that because most of us are uninformed and we don't realize what's happening, that we are being deceived and strategically so, that we get sucked into things in which we are a part of and affirming something that is totally against God. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to ruffle some more feathers. If it's not quite enough in here, it will be. Um, this last week, we saw these two marches that were taking place. We saw this women's march, and then we saw the, the Right to Life march or the, the, the pro-life movement march. And here's what's interesting, is I know lots of people who went to um, the women's march. And these are good, decent people who really want to see uh, women have equal rights in all areas of their life. And I, that's a biblical thing. I get that. Women are created equal, we're different, and yet we're equal. We're both made in God's image, and so we both should have the same amount of rights. But here's the problem they have been co opted into not just marching for something that is for women, which is a good thing, but the thing that one of the central principles that they were marching for was the right to have an abortion. So now we've been co opted. They say, hey, come march with us. It's going to be great. We want to stand up for women. Awesome. Amen to that. However, One of the things that we're marching for, actually, one of the top priorities we have is we want them to be able to have abortions. Wait, wait, wait. Now, how did we come, how did we find ourselves in that company? How did we get ourselves into this mess? In fact, on their website, I looked at it before here, it's um, their central principle is the right to have open access, open access to safe, legal, affordable abortion and birth control for all people. In fact, a pro life group tried to help sponsor this march, and said, yeah, this is great. Like, we want to support women. And they said, no, 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 you no. Can't. You can't be a part of this. Because to be a feminist, and to be someone who stands up on behalf of women, you also have to affirm the right to an abortion. But see, so many of the people that I've seen and that I know, they went and they were co-opted into believing something that's a lie. And my bet is that, Most of them, they didn't know, they didn't get it, they didn't understand, but that's the point. The point is, because we don't do our research, because we are uninformed, because we are either naive or we just innocently, uh, or because we're ignorant, we don't understand that we are being deceived, that we are standing for something that is against God. And to plead ignorance, unfortunately, just doesn't work. And so we have to be people who are shrewd, who are thinking, who know our stuff, who know the truth, who can, who can point out lies and say, that is a lie that is trying to deceive me. I will not stand for it. And at the same time, we are also called to be innocent. We're supposed to be innocent in what we believe and think and support. We're also supposed to be innocent in our relationships. To And this is this is probably one of the ones that I've been working on the most is to be innocent in our relationships means that we don't go out and we're not looking to pick a fight with somebody. We're, we're not looking to cause disruption, that we're not looking to be people who are, are causing conflict. And yet at the same time, we're not hiding out and scared. We're not we're not in caves somewhere going, I just, you know, Jesus needs to come back. OK, this needs to happen soon. We're not we're not those we we're, we're innocent. We're also innocent in our actions, what we do with our money and our bodies and our tongue. I think the thing that best describes this balance, and it's an incredibly difficult balance, is we have to be people who are wise. We have to be able to read between the lines of what society is telling us, read between the lines of our relationships and even our own lives and our motivations, and we have to be innocent, and yet we have to be smart. I think wisdom or biblical wisdom best encompasses this. All right, let's continue on. Verse 17. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So, Jesus says, here's the fuel in order to push you through. As you are going to enter into suffering and conflict, and as people are going to persecute you, you don't have to worry because the Holy Spirit is going to be the one that indwells in you and speaks through you and gives you the power and the strength. And in 21, it says, brothers will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. That's a way to start a worldwide movement right there. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to follow me, and because the world hates me, they're also going to hate you. Who wants to sign up for this? Yeah, exactly, nobody, right? <laughs> That's probably what happened in, uh, originally as well. See, we have to remember that Jesus is no Mr. Rogers. He did not come so that everybody could sit around and hold hands and sing kumbaya and just have a good time, everybody. And in fact, um, just a few verses after this, which we'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks, it says, he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. You know what he means by this? He means people especially within the Western context, we believe the point of life is to find peace, inner peace and relational peace and peace with nature, whatever that means. And so it's all about peace. It's all about being comfortable. It's all about everything being okay. And Jesus comes along and says, absolutely not. The point of life is not peace, but is to find the truth. And the truth is something that is going to be incredibly uncomfortable for a lot of people. Marriage has given me great insight into this. Probably better insight for my wife because she now uh, has to deal with me. But I remember when we first got married, we had to wrestle through how our relationship was going to look and how we were going to deal with conflict. And so conflict really, at the end of the day, is about a disagreement in what is true, right? It's a disagreement in truth. And so whenever we'd have a disagreement in which she believed one thing and I believed another, her immediate response because of the family that she was brought up in was, let's just, let's just brush it under the rug. Everything's okay. We're all okay. Everything's okay. And I, on the other hand, came from the exact opposite in which I'm like, no, let's fight. Like, we're fighting right now. You don't know where you want to eat? We're fighting. Right? This is everything is an argument, everything, all the time, an argument. And even when we resolve it, I'm still like, oh, say something, say something. You know, I just, and so we had to come to like a a balance, right? Where it's not, we're not pushing on the rug, but we're also not just fighting about, you know, if we're having dessert or not. And so we had to come to some kind of balance about like, all right, how are we going to do? How, how is, what is our marriage going to look like? And see, at the end of the day, this is really what What our faith journey has to look like is the Christian is the one who has to find that balance, which says, you know, I can't just let it be brushed under the rug. I can't do it because I believe in the truth and the truth is X in this matter. And so I'm not going to just let it slide. Now, in humility and love, I'm going to talk about what truth is, and we're going to have a conversation about it. But on the other hand, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. I have to come to this place in which I am bringing truth, but I'm bringing it in love. And you know what's going to happen? People are going to get pissed off. Truth is always confrontational. It always divides people. In fact, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you have lost friendships because you're a Christian. People say, I don't want to be around you any longer. You're lame. You don't do any of the same stuff anymore. In fact, you just talk about Jesus. I, you know what? I'm tired of hearing it from you. You know why? Because Jesus is divisive. Truth is divisive. And so when we stand for truth, it's going to divide us. But he continues on, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Standing firm is about not active resistance, but it's about this patient endurance, that if opposition comes and it requires sacrifice, even sacrifice of my very life, that I will stand firm in my commitment to following Jesus. In fact, this is why we have seen through the ages, tens and tens of thousands of Christians go through the most torturous uh, deaths in which they have suffered beyond what any of us can imagine. And yet they continue to stand firm in their faith because it says the one who perseveres. See, Jesus is giving us a warning here. He says, starting as a Christian is easy. Starting anything is easy. It's finishing that's really difficult. And it's the people who finish strong, who stand firm in their faith until either they die or the Lord comes back. Those are the people who will be saved. The people who quit early, they're lost. Same with marriage. Any idiot can get married. In fact, most idiots get married. (laughs) Very few stay married, though, because getting married is a one day you stand up and you go, I do, and it's like, okay, fantastic, you're married. That wasn't very difficult. However, it's very difficult to stay married. Why? Because it's much tougher to finish well than it is to start, and he calls us to finish well if we want to be saved. Verse 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Here's what he's ultimately saying. He's saying, look, um, they're going to crucify me. They're going to to torture, crucify, and murder me, and you are my disciples. You are going to have the same fate. You may not physically be crucified like many people around the world, but you know what's going to be crucified? Your reputation, opportunities, some of your relationships, because people are going to see what you believe in, and they're going to go, you're a bigot. They're going to speak badly of you. They're going to say you're a homophobic because you won't affirm something. They're going to say that you're a misogynist. They're going to say they're going to. Have you ever watched the news when they talk about Christians? They're not fans, and they will say the same thing about you. We're going to lose opportunities. I have been personally involved in business places in which they go. Look, we're going to bend the rules a little bit. And when you say no, I can't. I can't do that. They're going to say, well, then we're going to let this opportunity go to somebody else. We're going to lose relationships. You're going to have friends and family that are not going to want to have anything to do with you. In fact, you may have to break up with somebody who you love because they're not a Christ follower and you know that you can't be with them. And this is why our lives are offensive to other people. Jesus' life was incredibly offensive and our life as a reflection of Jesus' life is going to be offensive as well. Because when people look at our lives and what we do with our time and our money and, uh, and our schedules and, and our, our bodies, they're going to look at us and they're going to be offended because we are a threat to them. Not because we're rubbing it in their face, not because we're jerks. When we are humbly walking in truth and love, people are going to look at them and they're going to go, I don't like that. You know why they don't like that? The same reason why you didn't like it when you were watching other people because when I was growing up and I was watching people who were actually acting like Christians versus me, I felt guilty about it. And I went, I know I shouldn't be doing this with my body, but I am. And they were a threat to me. I know I shouldn't be so selfish with my money and my time and I know I should probably be more giving and more caring and compassionate. And as I watch these Christians over there doing it, oh man, they're offensive to me. Because the world is all about, it's my money, it's my business, it's my time, it's my body, it's all about me. And then when they see people who have given up all of the rights that they have over their body and over their mind and over their money and their time, and they give it to Jesus, they are threatened and offended by it. So here's the question that this text really confronted me with at the end of the day. If your life is not offensive to someone... It's either because you're not living like Christ or because you don't know any non-Christians. See, either you're not living like Christ, so when your non-Christian friends look at you, there's no difference between you and them, and so they're not offended. You're just one of the, one of, one of the guys or one of the girls. In Luke six twenty six, it says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. If everybody likes you and no one's offended by your lifestyle, it's probably because you don't look like Jesus. Or it's because you're not hanging out with anyone and you're not on mission. The beginning of this passage in last week was talking about going, being sent out. And some of us are so, uh, so much in a Christian bubble that we can't offend anybody because everybody else that we know is Christians. And so we are called in humility and love to live the most offensive life because it's so countercultural that when people look at us, they think they're a threat. We do it in love, we do it in truth, but we're so different that they're offended. And so here's my couple of closing questions. Who is offended by you because, uh, because you look so much like Jesus? And if no one, why? Or, Let me finish with this. When I look at this text, this text confronts me in a very specific and very tangible way. And one of the challenges that I now have walking away from this is, okay, I understand where I'm failing. I understand what needs to change. And so I want to walk away from this, not feeling guilty or not feeling like, oh, Jesus doesn't love me. That's not what this text is about. This text is supposed to be a motivator for you to get out and live like Jesus and then bring other people into relationship with him. And so here's what I want to be, and I hope that you do too, is I want to be a person who is so much like Jesus that on one hand people are offended by me, but the same thing that is offending one group of people is attracting another group of people. Because one group is saying they're a threat, I'm offended by them, but the other is saying, Who is this Jesus that can transform a human heart like that? Those are the people that I wanna reach, those are the people that I want my life to impact. Let's pray. Lord God, your, your teachings are confrontational, Lord God. It's As I read this, I would, not, I would not say this. I would not preach this. If I were going to try to attract people into this movement, this is not what I would say. And yet, it's the very thing that convinces me that you are who you say you are, Lord. And so, Lord, so many of us in this room, we, we are confronted with the reality that our life is just so much like everybody else's out there. And Lord, we want to change that. We want to become people who are little Christ, who reflect you to the rest of the world. And yes, we will offend people, but we will also bring people into a relationship with you because they see you through us. And so Lord God, we just pray that you would give us strength, that you would give us fortitude, that you would help us to walk out of here and that we would be on mission, ready to go, ready to impact the people in our world. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's the name we pray. Amen.